Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. You are in for quite a treat if you're a jazz fan. We are going to be celebrating what would have been the 100th birthday of Dave Brubeck and hearing from the members of his trio. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. This is an exciting episode. I am really looking forward to having the chance to bring these three interviews together for the first time. You are listening to our uh, special podcast dedicated to the Dave Brubeck Trio in celebration of what would have been Dave's 100th birthday. He was born on December the 6th, 1920. Uh, what I'm really excited about is uh, the three members of the trio. Um, of course, all of them are on take five. So I always brag every time it's playing over the loudspeaker in the grocery store that, hey, I interviewed the bass player. Hey, I interviewed the drummer and the piano player and composer. Um, I was only eight when the saxophone has passed away. So I hope I'm off the hook from not being able to, uh, to interview Paul Desmond. But the others you will be hearing from today in this very special episode. Yes, we are going to be hearing from the three guys, as Dan just said, uh, bassist Eugene Wright, drummer Joe Morello, and of course, pianist Dave Brubeck. So to start us off, uh, we're going to hear a little bit about Eugene Wright's uh, background and kind of growing up and just the music that he grew up with and what that meant for him. So here is Eugene Wright. Well, I would love to ask you, All right. I'd like to understand a little bit about your own background and how music came into your life. Did you have a lot of music that your parents played when you were young? My mother used to play the piano for us every now and then we were little kids, but she never ever got into it. My life has always been based on the blues. And I say the bass on the blues because I heard all the greats and I had a big band, you know, starting in 43, you know, 1943. And uh, we used to play in front of all those bands, you mm -hmm. know, see. And uh, you'll probably get a picture of them, one of the bands or something if I can get put on. But then the idea is educational. I, I sit around my house here now when I go out, it's a word about teaching some student that comes by. Realizing that, said, now to get this far in life, 91 years old today, uh, and still play and still like to go out of the country, you know, as long as I'm well enough to do it, you know, sometimes I have to give up on that. But the important thing about this, about having you come to do this, is that uh, L. Al was one of my sons, you know. And uh, when he came into the band, boy, he was playing good. But by the time we got a hold of Cal Jader, we took him apart so many times, Cal would twirl. And, uh, and when I say took him apart, that means that 
the blues, we got hit, we locked up on him. You know, we'd be playing, and all of a sudden, Cal would be playing at Vibes and cooking, and think he's through, and Al, and I'd look at him, Al, hey, you know, look at him, you talk, okay. And, we, and when we ended that next course that he finished, bam! I'm, I learned this all from Count Basie's band. See, that's where I really got my really foundation. But in there, that's the way that in 48. But what happened was, uh, I showed Al, I said, I don't know, we'll set him down. When he thinks he's through, we'll shift it. Now, uh, Cal would be playing this thing. Uh, we were doing a tune, which is a straight jazz, not the Latin jazz, just straight jazz. And he'd be cooking, and all of a sudden we shift. And the shifting means that you got him right here, and the drums can do this. Uh, the sound would be like, bop, bop, we're cooking, bam, bam, bam. All of a sudden you hear the drums, same key, same time. And then I start walking lines, see? And he twirl. I should tell you about wigs right now, too. And what would happen is, man, he, in the Latin things, I, when I first started with him, I said, you know, uh, Cal, I'm, I'm from New York and all those guys, you know, I said. And I heard all the top guys from Cuba and all those places, the guys come over and stay and live in, uh, in, you know, in, in New York and so forth. I said, so it's kind of letting your playing is all right. I had no mind playing. I'll have a good time, you know, so forth. I said, but you know, I'm, my school is pep, boom. Marked it now, see, so forth. And uh, so forth and so we, so it got, I mean, we had a good time, man. And we got so we could lock him up, and even with the Latin things, the way he liked to play the Latin was, and I'm from New York. So it reminds me of when Cal came to uh, California to do this recording. He called me and said, could you get me three guys so I want to record some things? I said, yeah, I'd be glad to do it. I've got Jerry Wiggins and Bill Dillard. Man, he couldn't, he couldn't get a better rhythm section. I don't care where you go. Because these guys all play with all the heavy people way before I was in, in music good, you know, mm. so forth. And so what happened was uh, uh, we were talking. I said, well, you know, uh, for example, I'm talking about this particular thing with Wigan and her or something. I said, we got on a tune that I wrote, uh, the Melody Swings and another few other tunes that were recorded with uh, Cal. But what happened was he didn't realize what a rhythm section can do to you, see. You get a good rhythm section, like basses was my learning all the basic things. Joe Jones would tell me what to do, Freddie Green, and Walter Page. I was watching them when I was just a baby, you know. And to end up with uh, Walter Page's place because he got sick, you know, according to what they were told me. And I took his place in 1948 for a year, almost two years, you know, just before he uh, disbanded the big band because of all the problems that come up, you know, personal problems with people and so forth. Most people who are really knowledgeable in jazz start mm -hmm. talking about 
the ideal rhythm section, mm -hmm. they always go to bassy. That's right. Tell me about being in that nucleus. That was uh, like uh, being presented a Rolls Royce car <laughs> and never played anything better than the okay bass, you know. But they were so, well, all these, all these guys were my senior 20 and 30 years, mm. you know. And the nice part about it was I could ask anybody, you know, they come up. I could ask like uh, Pettiford or I could ask uh, Charlie Mingus, all my favorite bass players, Milt Hinton, all those giant bass players, Albert Kevin, I could name basses for the next, you know. These gentlemen, and I'd ask some questions. Hey, well, oh, Gene, right? I don't. You, you ain't supposed to play like me. And Mingus always pulled that. But George the Vivier used to. They fight me down. I'd come from the YMCA uptown and walk down the Bridal Park all the way down to Berlin on that area. And man, uh, and hey, come on, Gene, right? And hey, bartender, get Gene right a soda and put him right here. He's gone. He's with us. So they all. It was three of them. Uh, Vivier was playing with the piano player, I can't remember his name, right? And uh, this great drummer out here in California uh, has a brother every now and then in movies and commercials. But anyhow, he was playing drums with, with, a, with a bass player. It was that? Yeah. Each one had, this is a duel, two duels. Boy, we got to playing. And Wiggs started putting his stuff on them, because Bill Diller and I had locked up like him. He's when he was cooking, oh man, he's marching. But at the same time, Bill Diller coming out of a course, getting ready to go another direction. You'd hear Bill Diller saying, "Yeah, brushes," you know. And all of a sudden, we get ready to put the 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 put the the uh, icing on the cake. He was shift. Start marching, and he put that thing in the two out of the four into the two and be swinging harder. And I learned about that by chance from Lumpers Big Band, see, because I had a big band later on in life there and so forth, we talk about, which was uh, very, um, how would you put it? Uh, well, after I had the, we had this kid band coming out of all the high schools, but the army was drafting everybody all the time. Once you got to be 18, 17, what would happen was uh, we had this band. We were playing in front of Basie Duke and, and Lumford into Savoy Ballroom and the theaters, you know, Regal theaters shows, and was what's so nice about it? I used to could go to this. Uh, the Regal, uh, the Regal Theater on Saturdays, when I was like 12, 13, I had to be home before dark, you know. And I'd hear all those, all those uh, bands. And I, uh, my brother and I used to, we used to have a little band. I used to play a little cornet and I knew everything. I learned everything by ear though, in those days, see. But what happened was, uh, I went down, the first time I could go down to the field, you know, for myself or something like that, but, you know, for the early first show, actually, on a Saturday, and I heard Walter Page playing bass. I could hear him all the way up in the third deck. No microphones and things like that. 
But man, in Philippine. And that this was like a whole new world to me, you know. And I never forgot it. But the key that I really have to thank for Walter Page in this area, because everywhere we played, like we played uh, uh, Birdman, places, you know, all that stuff, and on the road, so forth, different places. But Walter Page would always be wherever Basie was playing. And every now and then he said, now we played the Strand Theater for six weeks. And Sinatra was right down at the Paramount, I think, it was, don't they, those years. And man, Walter Page said, hey, hey, kid, bring your best over, I want to tell you something. Anytime, you know, just tell me what it was all about. And I brought her, he says, now, when you play with Billy Holiday, yeah, because it was the Billy Holiday with Basie, then I know six weeks, man, I learned a lot. But I had already played with, with uh, the Buddy the Franklin, people like that before, basically, you know, when I was in different groups. But what happened was, uh, he says, now, uh, don't, don't be trying to play all these notes, because he realized that I wasn't a good reader, but I knew that book by heart. Because we played all this. And man, so I said, well, okay, fine. He said, now the next time she sings about it, listen to Patty Green. He'll set it for you and play a nice two. Well, I always had been hip to how to let them know, you know, that just was a gift. Those guys finished me off with that, so I, you know. And a two, it can be all kind of ways, but when I was in head then, I could be saying, that you, and let the whole body do it. See? And then when the band come in, oh man, it was joy, you know? Just so much. And that's when I had been told what to do, because I thought I was going to be a young kid going there. You know, and and change a lot of things. I went in there and let, came out of that band with so much knowledge and experience that I didn't have no problem with anybody after that. You know, mm -hmm. but I never uh, considered myself as a soloist. You know, playing like Blanton and those guys and Charlie Mingus would always come to the club when when I was uh, Dave on the State Department tour. Gee, right, bring your babies over. I said, okay. Bring the bass over. I'm doing this now. Took the bass. I'll show a little bit on the bass. Playing the chord and the change and the melody at the same time. And that's just why I look at him and say, Now, why do you do this to me, man? Why would you do this to me? Oh, what do you mean? You don't want to play my stuff. No. And he says, well, why don't you do So forth. But every time I see him on those tours, like we used to all do all, all over the country, and sometime out of the country, festivals they called them in those days, uh, George Weins and all those guys, you know. But, but man, music, boy, I'm telling you, it's, it's always been a gift, you know. But I you know, came through here, but, and teaching, I love because I had a teacher, Paul Gregory, when I got out to California for the first time uh, with our, uh, with Buddy DeFranco. Uh, that was in '51. See, here comes uh, um, Mr. Gray. He came in and he walked over and said, 
Mr. Wright, he says, I, I was noticing how you play. You play with, you walk like you're walking like that. I said, that's what I do. I'm a walker. Yeah, this is really a lot of fun, you guys. I love Gene Wright. Isn't that a wonderful guy? And um, such a privilege that we had the opportunity back in 2014 to sit down with him in his home outside of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, he's really one of the unsung heroes of jazz. And what's so wonderful is that in recent years, a lot of people are very interested. He's actually one of the most uh, watched web clips uh, in our collection on the NAM website. Uh, people are really having more and more a strong interest in in his contributions and I'm so very glad that's happening especially now while he's still with us because we send him birthday cards and updates on the fact that he is being watched and remembered and he greatly appreciates that. Eugene is 97 years old and uh, still going strong amazing. He was born in 1923 and grew up in Chicago as we heard a little bit about some of those, those early musical influences and just really has that special place in, in history and so, so wonderful and so proud of what he was able to do. It's a, a very compelling story. So we're going to hear a little bit more from him later on. But uh, next up, who are we going to hear from now? Next, we're going to hear from Joe Morello, who is arguably one of the most influential drummers there is, one of the most studied drummers there is. Um I, I know a lot about Joe just because I studied from his book Master Studies, which is one of those books you get as a drummer and you just kind of live with it your whole life. Um, some very intense exercises. Joe is very known for his use of unusual time signatures, which is really obvious in the music that he plays. <laughs> um, so we're going to be listening to Joe. He's going to talk about growing up with music, getting into playing the drums, and uh, who he listened to and who he played with. One of the things that is very interesting to us is your long career in, in music. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about where that came from? Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up? Well, my mother used to play the piano a little bit, you know, not professionally or anything. And uh, then I started playing violin when I was five years old, you know. And, well, it's a boring story. I'll go through the whole thing for you when you... You're not rolling in, in the... Uh, yeah. Oh, you are? Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, well, like I said, you know, she used to play the piano and uh, nothing special. My uncle and uh, aunt, they played in the silent movies. That's where they go back. <laughs> and uh, years ago, before my time, you know, <laughs> with a guy cranking, you know. <laughs> Oh no! And uh, so I played, started studying violin when I was five years old, and uh, I uh, played till I was about ten, and then I got bored with the thing. And I said, because I used to do little concerts and like Lord Frankel Fontelroy, they're going out with the short pants and the whole the black <laughs> play <laughs> and uh, little concert things and. Uh, and I couldn't read music because I had, I was born with bad vision, you know, with, uh, so everything I did, I, uh, I just memorized it. The, you know, the teacher would say, like, you know, here, uh, Joseph, and I would say, here we are, we're going to do this. And so, so she'd play a little bit. And I'd, so when I'd go home, I'd bring the, the music home with my mother at the piano, would, and I'd memorize the thing. 
So she thought I was reading music all the time. The teacher, she said, well, that's like, I said, would you please, Miss Meyer, would you please play that? And she started, oh, then I knew where I was. I thought she, anyway, <laughs> that went on for years. And it was a shock when she found out that I didn't, couldn't read anything. You know, I said, you know, just listening to everything. And when I was about 10, I was doing my, my, my repertoire, you know, the concerts. The big thing would, used to be, I used to do the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, did that, and then I used to do the Sagana Weizen, you know, where Frankenstein comes out of the mountain, you know, that, oh, you know, and the Gypsy Violin, you know, and so that was the things that I used to do a little concert with, and a couple of things, plus all the basic little. So when I got around 10 years old, I got started getting tired of it, you know, my father would say, well, you can't do this unless you practice your hour, the 45 minutes a day, you know, those things. Anyway, I just quit one time. I didn't want to play anymore. And I, or I met Heifetz. That was the thing that really... My uh, teachers knew that his accompanist, the piano player that he had, and he, would, he was doing a concert in uh, Boston. And uh, at the, he was in the hotel there. He had a suite there. So she arranged it that we could go bring me up there and the Heifetz was going to... Okay, so we go up there and uh, he played, he took my violin and played a little, little thing and he made my violin sound so great I knew it was in the wrong ballpark. I said, no, this. So, and then he, he let me have his violin and he said, well, you will try it. And I was holding it and my teacher said, do you realize how expensive this is? <laughs> I had no, no reason to think. Something like sixty thousand dollars to me. Sixty thousand. That was the, the, the end of the world. You know, they had to take it away. You know, but it was great. But he he was a real nice man, and he said, in those days, they call every kid like Master Joe, the Master Billy. You know, one of those things. Please, you're going to be a very fine musician. But by then, I knew it was. I was already playing drums. I wanted to play drums. I said, no, this is not for me. And I, everywhere when I used to do these little concerts with these little symphony orchestras and stuff. I'd always go in back of the screens and look through where the percussion was, because I used to love it. I thought that was great. And my teacher would come along and grab me by the pants and, that's not music, that's noise, you know. Well, anyway, that's where it all started. So I went to, we had a vaudeville theater in Springfield, Mass. That was my hometown. And uh, I used to go and see you know, they would have a movie and then six acts of vaudeville. And the drummer there was Joe Sefcik. And he was a great drummer, actually. I'd go down and I'd be sitting right here, and he, you know, there'd be a railing and the drums were out there. And I'd just sit there. It got to the point that the comedians up there would say, hey, boy, the, the show's up here. And I thought, <laughs> but I used to watch Joe, and I had nerve enough to. Uh, I asked him, I said, do you teach? And he said, yeah, and blah, blah. So I started studying with him, and uh, I just enjoyed it. It was great, you know, and well, I was with him for about three years. And, uh, oh, I went to George Lawrence Stone in Boston and studied with him and, uh, for a couple of years. And then Billy Gladstone, Radio City Musical. So that's basically my background with uh, the studying. And so was it uh, difficult as far as uh, being a set player with your vision impairment? You mean a drum player? No, not, nothing. Because I could memorize very easily. Hmm. Though I, I went down to New York and starved for about a year, you know, and <laughs> lived. <laughs> 
there's not uh, what is it? There used to be a, an Italian restaurant down right in Times Square. And Phil Woods and I would go down there with the 35 cents. You could have a plate of spaghetti and a, one chunk of Italian bread. If you gave the guy 10 cents tip, he'd give you another piece. But it was way, way back there, and uh, it was this incredible. It was this 35 cents a plate. The guy was making the spaghetti in the window in a barrel, you know, like. But at, uh, then I went with uh, 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 Sal Salvador, was a friend of mine, a dear friend, a guitar player. And uh, he went with the Kenton band, and he happened to be in town, you know, so he, he, he kept, I got, got together with him, and he introduced me to Marion McPartland, and that's where I met her. Mm. And uh, I used to sit in, with, I'd go down there, and she'd let me play maybe a couple of tunes with the group, and uh, I know she liked my playing, and the drummer that she had wasn't really what she wanted, and... Uh, let me make a long story short. I went with her and I was with her for about three years, I guess, at the Hickory House and we traveled in Detroit and Columbus and places like that. And I'm, you know, we were here for two weeks, two weeks in Chicago, two weeks in Detroit, you know, one of those things. But the main thing was at the Hickory House. Yeah. And she was a fine pianist. She's still around. I think she's in her 80s now. Yeah. Yeah. She's... Uh, Still doing pretty well, I guess. Amazing, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Sal Salvador is a bit of a hero of mine. What a fine player. Just oh, yeah. Stuff. What sort of guy was he? Sal? Yeah. Oh, he was a sweet guy. Very good, very kind man. A lot of fun. Always a good sense of humor, you know. And he was always... Uh, we did a couple of albums together, and... It was, we were just very close friends, you know. We'd, he was from Connecticut. And, you know, we, I was in Springfield, and Phil Woods was around in those days. He was a little kid about this big. I got him his first job playing with, with a commercial group, like in a hotel and a nightclub. And there's one place we had to sing. That would have, that would have been a joy. <laughs> sing in harmony with this Irish tenor who was the leader of the band. <laughs> That's a long story, but it's a lot of fun. I had so many crazy experiences, you know. I played with an Irish band on the radio and played with, you know, Italian music with the Italian bands. I don't know, played a lot of weddings and Jewish weddings and the whole thing. So you I did everything like most people do, you know, when you're young. You know? <laughs> Jesus. No, it's been a great career for me. I've been... Uh, Tell me a little bit about some of your, your own heroes as far as drummers go. Who, who were you listening to as a kid? Oh, I, it, it's great. You know, I, when I went to New York, it was in the 50s, 1950, 51, when all the things were happening. It isn't like today. It's, there's not too much going on. A lot of rock and roll and fusion, you know, confusion, whatever you want to call it. And uh, it was... People like uh, Joe Jones with the Basie Band and people like Max Roach was around in those days. Now, he's fairly ill, I understand he's not well. I'm not certain, but I think they said it was dementia or something like that. And Art Blakey and people, that whole Dizzy Gillespie were around. And, and did you get to um, meet some of the, the guys that you admired oh, sure. during that time? Yeah, you know, the, the drummers that were really... 
impressed, impressed me was people like Joe Jones and Sidney Catlett was a very fine drummer. And Max was very influential. I liked Max wrote, and the reason that Max was at the time is uh, the people like Jane Krupa and Buddy Rich, and uh, they were playing a different style where Max didn't have that kind of technique, but he played with more of a melodic thing. So it seems that in my career, uh, I've got to know Gene very well. God, we I used to go up to his house with my wife, and uh, it was it was really incredible. Here's this man that was responsible for all of us, for Rich and Roach and all the you know the drummers, because he was the first one that brought the drums into the foreground. Yeah. Now he got a lot from Chick Webb too. And I didn't I never saw him personally. But I've heard some records from him, and he, I could see the influence of Gene and Buddy in that, you know. And uh, he, he used to, you know, we go to his house. One time we were doing one of the NAMM shows, or one of the, one of the, the, the thing I used to do every one of them with from Ludwig, you know, they just, I think there was a NAMM and an MENC, whatever the always, you know. And, uh, they put me in a booth and with the autographs and you know those I was selling a lot of drums for them at the time and and I had won a few downbeat poles and all that with wood Brubeck and everything so uh, so Gene was with uh, uh, he was with uh, Slingerland and I was with Ludwig drums and uh, getting back getting back to this the story and uh, is that was doing a show this one time and. Gene was with uh, with Slingerland on the other side of the. So I'd go visit him on my little time all over off, and he'd come on his time, and we'd just hang out. And so he said this one day, he said, "Are you coming? Are you going to be in home, or you know, next week?" I said, "Yeah, I believe so." To make a long story short, he wanted me. He invited Gene and I up to his house, and the reason he kept saying, he said, "I'm having trouble with my technique." He said, "Would you help me?" And I said, "Gene," I said, "You." You wrote the book on this thing. I said, you know, I, I remember him when I was a little kid, and he was like the king of the drums, you know, nicest guy I'd ever want to meet. Mm. Wonderful guy. We, we, Gene would be in the library up there reading, and we'd be downstairs with the drums, you know, and uh, he was uh, a big influence. And then Buddy Rich, I got to know very well, and he, uh, he was one of the great drummers. I think, the, you know, he technically he was. It was, it was fantastic. I've heard such bad stories about him from people that, uh, that he was such a rough guy and a mean guy and rude. And I can't honestly say one bad thing about him. The man is, was a gentleman with me and with my wife. He, he always liked Jane. And uh, I'd go see him and it'd be, come on, let's go quiet. Let's, he said, let's get away and just talk and how you been. And it was a wonderful guy, you know. So once again, that was Joe Morello. And if you'd like to hear more from his interview, um, we are going to be hearing a little bit more later on. But you can also check out the full video interview that we have on our website. If you head over to namnamm.org slash library, search for Joe Morello and it'll pop up for you there. So now to round out our trio, since we are going over the Dave Brubeck trio, we should go over... Dave Brubeck. <laughs> so we're going to hear a little bit about uh, him growing up and 
the uh, influence that his mother had uh, on his musical career and just the importance of the teachers and mentors that he had and his, uh, th- his thoughts on, on jazz musicians and students and where, and how it all kind of formed into being uh, what it is now and the effects he's had on it as well. So here is Dave Brubeck. Well, my mother was a very good pianist and, almost became a classical performer, but decided because she had three children that she better stay home and take care of us and teach. So she taught most of the day and then practiced at night after her students were through. So I I heard piano going day and night. <laughs> Do you recall the uh, the make of the piano that you had as a child by chance? I think it was a chickering. <laughs> but we had four pianos. Wow. And she encouraged you to go on the classical route or how did that develop? Uh Well, she started by by teaching me the typical way, you know, John R. Thompson and things like that. And she could see that I was not a typical student. So she started teaching me more from the harmonic side of things. And uh, I always tried to write things and of course I couldn't write them down when I was four or five years old but she would write them down for me. I'd play them and I was always interested in making up my own music. So I never became a classical pianist. And you were doing the polyrhythms and that sort of thing uh before you were really playing jazz, is that right, or? No, at the same time. Because mm. my brother had a jazz band that rehearsed in our house. So I, I heard that he was 11 and a half years older. So when he was in high school, I would, be in kindergarten, you know. But they rehearsed there. They were out of high school or in high school. And later on, that band became a more commercial band. And a name like Del Courtney, I don't think you'd know him. I interviewed Del Courtney. Really? <laughs> As a matter of fact. Well, he was the pianist, huh. and he was, uh, I think, took lessons from my mother. And uh, he took over the band because he had more of a name. Uh, and. The the band worked in Oakland and San Francisco. 
Did you have mentors or particular um, teachers that uh, really fostered your talent and your enthusiasm? Mostly J. Russell Bodley at the College of Pacific and uh, Horace Brown, who, who taught uh, counterpoint. They they were very good for me and uh, very appreciative. At that time, you didn't play jazz in any conservatory in the United States, probably in the world. <laughs> and uh, yet they knew that's what I wanted to do. And uh, they, kept involved with me as a jazz musician. But you, you couldn't even practice in jazz in a, in a practice room. That's how, how strict. It was that way in every school. Just frowned upon. Now our institute is at the College of Pacific and the jazz kids are in some ways, uh, more aware of what it really takes to be a composer or to understand the fundamentals of music and produce on their instruments. Uh, I think they they inspire the ones in the in the conservatory to in the direction of uh, I, I I'd call it you see so many classical musicians aren't too interested in improvisation. We have a son. Um, we have five sons, but one teaching improvisation in, uh, in strings at York University in Toronto. And uh, he's played with many different symphony orchestras. He just finished playing with Cheryl Crow. Before that, he was with uh, the Dixie Chicks and the uh, wow, I can't think of their name. Indigo Girls. Indigo. And uh, Jewel. And, 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 and he's played with all of those wow. because he can read anything and improvise. And you see, that's becoming more important in uh, the colleges now, and it's gonna become more and more important. And the, the crossover that we've seen at the University of Pacific, at first, what are these jazz kids doing on campus to the point now is uh, 
uh, well, who's your best piano student? Oh, the one that's in the jazz band. He's, he's one of our best classical players. That's a, and the trumpet player, he could inspire the legit player, probably play equal to him, and then turn around and play fantastic improvisations. So that's happening at a lot of schools. What do you think that shift is attributed to? Was it just a period of time had to pass, or were there milestones that made that possible? Uh, my wife remembers uh, a copy of Etude magazine where on the first page, what did it say? Jazz was... Something about the evils of jazz. An etude magazine for music teachers. And uh, this was in the 20s. And it had quotes from various very well-known teachers. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, that to keep jazz out of the classroom. And your mother felt the same way. Yeah. Until she heard Art Tatum. Then she, she said, David, now I know what you're talking about. Because we happened to be riding in my car that had a radio, a 1937 Chevrolet. And Tatum came on because I had a jazz station on and played humoresque. Well, my mother played humorous, and she was so impressed with somebody who could play that and then improvise on it. Okay, that is Dave Brubeck during his NAM oral history interview as we celebrate what would have been his 100th birthday on the Music History Project podcast. You know, as I said earlier, bringing these three guys together in this way for this podcast is really special because over the years we have been so proud of interviewing uh, Joe and Eugene and Dave. So it's neat to have them together for this podcast. You know, one of the things that's most compelling to me about Brubeck is um, his style, of course, and the uniqueness of bringing in these different elements, as we heard a little bit from his background so far, um, you know, in, in composition and classical um, music, and combining that with popular music and jazz in a way that nobody really had done before, and different time signatures and different styles, and 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 space. You know, one of the things I learned most about jazz from Dave Brubeck is space. You can learn that a lot from Count Basie too, um, and, and Ellington, but with Brubeck, it was a little different and, uh, very interesting. If you are familiar with his song, in your own sweet way, um, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you aren't, please take a listen to that tune. Uh, it gives you a real, I think, insight into the mastermind of composing jazz music in the Dave Brubeck style. Uh, it also should be known, uh, I don't want to be misleading, uh, as much as 
Dave has been a fantastic composer. He did not compose Take Five. That goes to the saxophonist Paul Desmond, and the only one from that record that won't be on this podcast, sorry to say, um, but a uh, very important shout-out to him. And while we're shouting out people, uh, our great jazz, or uh, the great NAM interview uh, with Dave Brubeck was made possible by our friend Paul Peterson. So a shout-out to Paul out there. Thank you very much for your role in making making this really very special interview possible. So let's continue on. Here's uh, the second segment that we wanted to play for you from Dave Brubeck's NAM oral history interview. Darius Meal was really the greatest influence on me in classical music, in composition. What were his thoughts about jazz? Well, he's the first guy to use jazz in creation of the world and he went through a period where he thought jazz was very important and uh, after the war he was teaching at Mills College in Oakland, California. After the war, GIs from World War II could go to school on the GI Bill, and he just was so happy to see male students. And at one of the first classes, he said, how many jazz musicians in the room? And I thought, oh boy, are we gonna be in trouble like we usually are? And we all raised our hands, and he said, I want uh, you all to feel free to write your fugues and counterpoint in jazz style, and uh, be wonderful if you, you would play them in class. So my first good group, the octet, came right out of that class. As I understand, and some of the things that I've read about him and, and sort of your take on his teaching was he, it was more than just thinking outside the box. It was applying um, your own ideas as you went along. Tell me a little bit about how he influenced you as far as a player goes. Um. Well, he liked what I did harmonically, and he could see that uh, there was a tendency to go towards polytonality, and he was an expert, maybe the greatest in the world when it came down to, to understanding how polytonality worked and one the only time he ever really got into that he showed me a chart of all the possibilities of different chords superimposed on other ones outside of that we, we he never said oh you must use this polytonal chord he was just saying it's 
the possibilities are enormous. Do you think he was surprised how you used polytonalities in, in, as you developed? Because you uh, he, took it to a level that he didn't. Oh, I don't know about that. But uh, he liked it, yeah. He, and he'd always ask me to play jazz at the beginning of a lesson. <laughs> Then he'd say, I wish I could do that. I said, you, you must be kidding. <laughs> you wish you could do this. And I, I can't come near doing what you do. He was like a Mozart. He could write with pen anything, write a whole score, each instrument transposed, just a mind that's beyond most minds. You know, I was trying to, I know I'm only having limited time with you, and I was looking at, I got my, I think, 14 of your CDs, and I'm looking at all these guys that you played with and who played with you, and I thought, boy, I would love to know if I could ask one question about all of those great things that you've done, I think I would go to Paul Desmond because that combination that you guys created was just unbelievable to me. And I just would love to know how that developed and how you saw that partnership. Well, we both liked uh, Bach and Stravinsky and Ravel and uh, show tunes and we had the same tastes in what we liked in music and when we improvised we would both draw on the same kind of music to incorporate that approach especially Bach and did you did you sort of feel like you melded as far as ideas and, and sound the first time you got together, or was that something that had to be developed? Well, the first time we got together, Paul didn't know what polytonality was. So he was puzzled when I would play in a different key than he was in. But that was just a, a quick meeting, and uh, I was on my way overseas, and uh, I had a session at the Presidio in San Francisco where he was in the band. And then when I got out of the Army, I was at Mills College, and we invited Paul to come over there but you should read the book on Paul. You'll find out everything that he went through. I did read that book. It was a fascinating tale, absolutely. I think that's probably why I love listening to him, is seeing all the things he had to go through and what he did. Yeah. What sort of guy was he, though, to you? Well, we were close friends. Hmm. He was friends of all our children and of my wife and 
It just uh, a very, they called him Uncle Paul and he was part of the family. That's neat. You can, I think you can sort of tell that when you listen to you guys together. At least I think I can. <laughs> yeah. Is it difficult when you have to perform with someone that you don't have the same connection with? Or as a jazz artist, you just find it? Well, you, you find it if, if you are lucky or simpatico or And in five minutes, you might find it with a musician, and you might work five years with another guy and never find it. So as we continue with our podcast dedicated to the Dave Brubeck trio, that was Dave Brubeck uh, from his NAM Oral History interview. And now we're going to go back to the great drummer, Joe Morello. Joe uh, was a fantastic guy. I can't say enough about him. He was so generous to give us some time in between his uh, master classes and lessons that he was teaching in uh, good old Orange, New Jersey, um, on the second floor of a music shop. Just a great, great guy. And a really special shout out to his, his wife, uh, who really made that possible. Um, she really juggled our schedule, uh, to make this happen. And so I brought her some flowers to say thank you. And, um, she just kept gushing over them. And of course, Joe couldn't see them. But he could smell them. So the big joke was she kept moving them around the room. She wanted it to be a shot in the interview, but then the table was too small for it. And so she set them on the floor on the other side. And, and so it was this comical thing about he's trying to figure out where the flowers are in the room. Um, <laughs> just a really, you know, fun moment. Uh, I'll never forget. And I'll tell you what, what one of the things that, um, was a wonderful, um, side effect of this interview was that we really got some street cred with the drummers in the world uh, by having this interview in our collection. And I didn't design it that way. This was a 2007, so sort of early on in our collecting of interviews. Um, but the, the drummers really stepped up and said, well, how grateful they were that we captured this very important story. Uh, somebody who was a major influence on their lives and with books that he's written and the DVDs and the master classes and of course his own playing. Uh, so I was really, really very pleased. And I, we still today hear people thanking us for this interview. Um, and I just want to say thank you to the universe for making it possible because, uh, we were in the right place at the right time, had a great help from his wife and we're very, very proud of that, as we are all three of these guys, actually. It's, uh, it's a blessing to share this with you guys. Definitely a great interview. Uh, all of these interviews are fantastic, but we're going to listen to a little bit more from Joe now, uh, talking a little bit more specifically about the topic that we're covering, which is Dave Brubeck and his band. So going to hear a little bit more about how he got on the road with him and just some, some good fun stories about uh, how he his interactions with Dave and, and the 
I guess, negotiations, if you will, of, of him being in the band and, uh, and just some fun stories about playing and performing. So here is Joe Morello. When I was on the road with Brubeck for all these years, we'd be doing a lot of one-nighters. <laughs> you'd be on the road for like three months at a time. And that's why I don't like to travel that much anymore. But um, we'd be in some, maybe in Dallas or something. But do Our concert would be through about 8 o'clock. And by the time, oh, 8 to 10, I'm sorry, about 10 o'clock. By the time we'd sign the autographs and talk with the kids and everything, They'd all leave, but for some reason, Gene Wright just said, we're well, the only ones that, that people want to see, just talk to the drummer. And Desmond said, nobody asked me what kind of reed that I have. <laughs> and Dave would say, nobody asked me what well, to the, the damn drums. I, they all are coming around the drums. And I'd, I'd be the last guy to leave. Which, but I never fluffed anybody off. I felt honored to be nice to people. I always had that feeling. I was never that great that I could just say, hey, don't bother me, kid, get it. No, I'm not into that act, you know, never. But uh, what happened with Buddy, I'd get back to the hotel and I'd have a note there and I'd say, I'm in town. I'm playing till one o'clock, so I'd go to see him play when he was with Harry James. And then after that, I'd say, let's hang out. He'd say, where are you staying? I said, at the hotel, that's where he was. He said, oh. So, to make a long story short, we'd be up in his room, practicing and talking about drums at four in the morning. I had to get the tr get a plane at 7.30, and I, he said, ah, you don't worry. I said, you're, you're going to be on the bus all day sleeping, you know. But uh, he was, we'd practice a little bit, and then I was, he was just a great guy. I, I can't say anything. Uh, I wish I could give you a horror story. I heard some, hmm. and I believe some of them that, that, that are on tape, you know. But he was a kind of guy, he told me, he said, he demanded, you know, you know, perfection. He said, when you were up there, he said, uh, do your best, play your best, you know, do, that's all he wanted. And he'd get a lot of these kids from Berkeley school, trumpet players, 18, 19 year old kids. And they, in school, they thought they were dab, you know, the dapper dance with the chicks and the whole thing, you know, they had great trumpet player and all this, you know. So when Buddy would get these kids and, and they'd get on the band and they thought they were really hot, They'd make one or two mistakes, and they'd stop them and say, "Hey, any more of that?" And out, you're gone. You know, you're a memory. And he's really scared to live in the heck out of these kids because he just wanted them, and they hated him at first. But then I've heard people say to me, they came back and they said, "You know, he was a hard guy to work for, but I really learned something." You know, because he'd say to the kids, he'd say, "Look, I've been doing this for 40 years, sonny boy. You know, you." You might be big in your school, but out here, no, you, this is the real, this is reality out here, you know. But these said the drummers uh, that I always uh, liked and we all got, got together. It was like a fraternity, you know. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your Brubeck experience. How did that start? <laughs> Very funny, because he used to come in the Hickory House with uh, when I was working with Mary and Parliament. Yeah, what happened, he, he would be doing Birdland, he would, that, did that, and the, I'm talking about the old Birdland, you know, that was uh, right next to the band box on Broadway, I guess. And so, Marion and Bill Crow and I would go over to see him, and uh, you'd walk in there, and you'd see the piano player and the saxophone player, the spotlight on them, but there was a drummer there, and the bass player, but you never saw him at all, you know. <laughs> and... 
And so, you know, they'd be doing their counterpoint and little tickly tunes and stuff, and uh, I frankly didn't like it, and nobody liked it. Marion's, it's kind of corny, because there's nothing, you know, there's no real swinging things happening there. Dave was trying to play like Bach and uh, the other guy, they're trying to try to do these fugues and uh, counterpoint and all this foolishness, but uh, a nice try, but nothing was really happening with it. Well, they probably thought it was, but the audience didn't seem to. They had a couple of good successful records, uh, an Oberlin College or something, and that's, that's what was probably good for young kids, you know, the young kids were impressed with all this. And so, to make a long story short, they come over to see Marion, and uh, so that's how I got to know him. And, I, I, and their drummer was his name Joe Dodge, he was a real nice fella. And I think it was Norman Bates that was playing bass, nice fella too at the time. But they never played. The drummer, Joe, said, I never took a four bar break since I've been with this group. Not, like, not even a four bar drum break, you know. He just had a bass drum, one cymbal, and a snare drum, and a hi hat, and that's it. You know? No, nothing at all. They were just there. So when they would, on the, on the marquee, on the sign, it would say Dave Brubeck, Quartet, featuring Paul Desmond. That was it, you know? And the other guys, it could have been anybody. Mm. And um, finally, they wanted to get off the road, and they wanted to do some things that the, the drummers couldn't play. Like they wanted to do like polyrhythm things, like the take fives, and that. Well, that was that's another story. But a lot of different things he was trying to incorporate. You know, different rhythmic structures. In other words, like. The, it started off in one thing and it, and it would modulate into another, so on. It's, it's, if you're familiar with the group, you could you'd know what I mean. And uh, so, we, to make a long story, he, he called me up one day and he said, I'd like to have you come with the group and meet me over at the, a hotel in New York City. I think it was in the lounge of the mermaid room or something in the share, whatever it was, a big hotel. So he wanted to change his drummer and blah, blah, blah. And I told him, I said, you know, I don't know if you'd like my playing. I said, because I don't particularly like what you're doing. You know, that doesn't, I said, I want to be able to play. I don't want to just sit there like, I said, if you want to just get a metronome, it's cheaper. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to take it. It's a small box. You can play with that. And that's what it, you know, Joe, they couldn't, they couldn't, his hands were tied, they're just playing some. So he said, oh no, I'll feature you, I'll you, blah, 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 and so on. And he said, uh, he said, I'm going on a tour for three months. He said, like, what night, you know, he said, you would like to have you do that. And, uh, and he wanted to sign a contract. I said, no, 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 please don't do that. No, no, because... I said, he said, well, I'll feature you. I'll, I'll mention you on the marquee. I'll, you know, I'll mention you. Blah, blah. So I said, well, I don't care, you know, about that. I just want to be free to play. So he agreed, and I, and I told him, I said, no, I may not like your group, and you may not like me. I said, that's fine. And this was one way of finding out, and that's we'll both go home and shake hands, and that's it. So he agreed to it, and I agreed to. Uh, to do the tour, I think it was September, October, November. We got no, no late September because we came back in December. It must have been about let's see, September, October, something. We've gone for about two months, one nighters, and um, it was uh, he featured me, and uh, the, one of the first jobs he did, 
we did it with a. Uh, is this too long, Boring Star? Oh, this is great. <laughs> uh, he, he sent me a couple of records that they had made, and he said, These are the things that we're going to do a TV show in Chicago. So I got there early. I, he gave me these records to listen to at home, so I listened to them. They're very simple, you know, very tempo changes. But you, it's, it was, I was doing a lot of that stuff at Springfield, you know, with, with Phil Woods and stuff. And people thought that I was kind of way out doing that crazy stuff, going from one tempo to another and in and out, you know. And uh, this is what he wanted. That was easy for me. So uh, we did the TV show, and, and he introduces me on the end. He said, this is my new drummer. And he said, uh, he wrote these, he's, he's played these tunes like, wrote, like as if he wrote them, because I'm you know, so easy to do, and he was knocked out. Then we play at the Blue Note then. And that was the same day. We did the, sh the show in the afternoon. And the place is mobbed, because it's a, a new, new group and all this. And So the place was packed. And we do a drum solo on a blues or something, so the whole place goes up. And the whole thing was crazy, you know, the people... So we break the set. Now Desmond runs off into the dressing room and Norman Bates runs off. <laughs> and I'm getting hung up with these people and they're shaking my hand and they're just... Guy from da from from Oklahoma said, "Damn, I got an oil company, and I'm from down Oklahoma. And if you ever come out there, I start to see you. You just Bill Knox is my this Knox Oil Company. I guess it was his name. <laughs> and he owned he owned most of the hotels, and he moved, he like one of these guys that owned the city. You know, like uh, Bill Knox. It was a big Knox Oil Company. That's what he was. He had a table of about seven people, and they were like." Damn, buying a drummer a drink and all that. I don't want to drink that. <laughs> so what happens in the, in the dressing room? Dave goes back and Paul says, I'm leaving. Morello's gone or I'm leaving. So Dave said, no, Morello's not going. He's staying. And Norman Bates was with Paul. And so they weren't going to come back on the stand. So Dave said, well, we're going to, he, he's staying so you can go. And they didn't go. You know, they came back. And for the first three or four months, Desmond didn't even talk to me. I mean, he was so upset. Because every time we do a drum solo, we get a standing ovation. And they never got standing ovations, you know. And we'd be playing all these doodly-doodly tunes and on the saxophone, and they would counterpoint, and that would be... But then the damn drum solo... <laughs> so Dave used to try to play a tune after the drum solo. He played For All We Know. I mean, that was it, For All You Know. You may never show up again, you know. But it was one of these funny things that... And then Desmond, after after a couple of months, he said, oh my God, let's not do a ballad after the... He said, just like, uh, what are you going to do, blow up the theater? He said, you're going to blow up cannons. He said, how can you follow the damn drum solo, you know? And it was just because they had never done it, you know, I guess. And uh, Well, that's that's the way it all started. And, uh, and finally, after, after, after six or seven months... After six or seven months, Paul, Paul and I became good friends. In fact, uh, we used to hang out together, and uh, he'd have a few drinks, and I, I, I'd, he'd be spinning down the hallway, and I'd put him into his room and slam the door and say, "Get him, get some rest. We've got to be up at nine in the morning," you know. But that's what happened with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the rest is kind of history. So once again, that was Joe Morello, and I highly encourage you if you're 
you're studying drums or an aspiring drummer um, to check out his books. He has some really good ones, including Master Studies, um, like I mentioned earlier. It has an exercise in it called The Stone Killer, which was developed by George Lawrence Stone, who wrote Stick Control, another book that every drummer should have. Um, and Joe put it into his book, and it's a pretty basic exercise, but the more you do it, the more you realize why it's called Killer. Um, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Very cool book and a very cool guy. Amazing drummer and just great to hear from. So to uh, kind of wrap up this podcast, uh, we're going to go back to Eugene Wright and hearing a little bit about his tour that he went on with Brubeck. Um uh, through the State Department, um, over to the Middle East, which is an interesting story. And then just, uh, his thoughts and, uh, memories of playing with Brubeck and also Take Five. So here is Eugene Wright. I was with Cal Jitter at the time. He's been ready to take all three months. I was going to go back to Chicago and study with a teacher there that I knew was a good teacher who, uh, taught, uh, this, this bass player, oh, Richard Davis, Richard Davis. He stayed with this teacher in Chicago for nine years straight. So when he came out and started working with uh, the singer, oh, not Ella, but the other one. Sarah? Sarah. You know, the group, so forth. Uh, as the bass player with the group, you know, so forth. But anyhow, so, uh, so I had told this girl, I said, well, no, what the cool that, you know, usually when these guys just say, well, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to tell you this. I said, no problem. And she said, well, now, so, and when they heard about basically it's going to be broke, and then they had to break up the group. And when they finally got around to tell me, the road manager got around to tell me that, well, after such, such a date, the bass is going to break it down to a set set or something. They had to keep playing something. You know. So I, I that said, this is no problem. I want to go back to Chicago, and I can start my two bands back there and details. No problem, you know, so far. But with Dave, uh, so I'm standing there, and Dave comes over to me. Jerry, he says, I want you to join the group. And I said, well, this is the Black House in, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, well, Dave, I got to tell you this. I said, I really don't know what you all are playing. He's, it was done, which what I was referring to, the style that he had going, I knew all the music, he all the standards, all the stuff he was playing, you know, and I love that, we did that thing so many different ways. Putting all the kind of style, uh, uh, feeling to it. Joe Morello, he could play Playing it just at the left hand, the melody, you know, or he put it in the bass drum, and I'd be walking, so forth. Anyhow, so I told him, I said, Well, Dave, I don't uh, know if I can play what you're playing. I said, I, I don't know what you're playing, really. He said, Well, why don't you come on, come over to the house and we'll check out, try some tunes and see what we got about. I said, Well, I can do that. I said, okay, well, I'll do that a couple of days. I bought, I think, uh, Paul's car to go to it because I didn't have no car. Anyway, so we got over to his house. That's the house in Oakland. And so we got in there, and he picked 
a tune and it had a line. And I think he may have been a little surprised because I had heard him, heard them play it, you know. And so I kind of like answered, you know, the, the, the form that he had on it. They had a dual type uh, counterpoint stuff that they were doing it. So as we got, we got through that first course, and Dave started to go that direction. He, I knew he was going to go, which is not not my way of playing, you know. But he started playing and. By the time we got through the first four or five bars, I realized what he was doing. See, see, because I listened. So when he got to maybe the first eight or sixteen of the tune, whatever it was, I'd wait for him the next time around. And uh, so he, uh, the tune would be. Well, on that, when I came in, it was I started marching on my, and I see him said, "Yeah, Jim, and we started laughing, and finished it, finished playing a little more for it, but started laughing. Jim, Jim, I said, "Well, Dave, if you're happy with the way I play." I said, I'm sure I can take it. It depends on you end. And he laughed again. I took the job. But it was only for the State Department tour. Government was sending out all the Far East, Middle East, what jazz is all about, so forth. And we were going to be as a tour for three and a half months. And so by that first week or two, man, Joe and Rob Knight just grabbed them both. Now you're going to play, you know. But it was just a nice. Uh, Introduction because when we did the three and a half months tour for the State Department, we went all through the Far East, Middle East, all near Russia, but couldn't go into Russia. All those countries, Scandinavian countries, all, 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 all the world. They were all, uh, Dave and, and Iola and Joe Morello's wife, they always wanted to see all the pyramids and all that stuff. The heat was murder. And so they God, I said, is you guys gonna go to the Senate? I said, no, 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 no. I, I'm just standing here and wait till everybody comes back and have a drink their cold sodas and stuff like that. And when they came back, <laughs> I looked at uh, Ellie, which is Joe's wife's name. I said, Ellie, why did you start new? I said, you should know better than this. She's very fair. I only got some color, but she wasn't fair like uh, and she started blowing up, you know, the, how the, the heat can make your whole body uh, swell. But, you know, that, it, it didn't last too long, but but everywhere they'd go, man, uh, uh, everything we did on that particular situation was uh, at nighttime in open air uh, theaters and stuff like that. So by the time I, when uh, Dave, I was, when Dave really ended the group, uh, this uh, saxophone player, I think of his name, asked me to go to Israel with him, you see. And 
I'll think of his name in a minute. So far. Anyway, so I said, yeah, I'm, Dave's been a pretty, he's got another, you know, rhythm section. He has to keep playing so he doesn't lose his feeling and still writing, so traveling everywhere. So, and, but every time uh, Dave would come to California, G. Ray, what you doing? I said, well, I'm just sitting here uh, looking at my bass. He said, well, I'm coming down to San Diego. I want you to play with, with, with the orchestra. I said, oh, all right, fine. So I went there, you know, I drove down there. It was a Christmas time, I think, or one of the major holidays. I think it was Christmas time. Anyhow, it was, a, you know, and they had all this beautiful music with this symphony there. And all I had to do was sit there and put that time on them, you know. And uh, certain places where I'd drop out, like the one, the conductor, they hit a part where, uh, the orchestra is playing, Dave's playing, and all of a sudden Dave will be on his own. I stop, and the orchestra would sort of like wait, and here comes the violins and this part, this part, and that part. And then uh, what would happen is uh, I'd always give them that first beat so that they wouldn't be struggling with it. Because Dave is very good with his time. And when Dave say, all his stuff, you know. And and if you don't know Dave, you're not going to be able to play it, you see. I mean, you play it, but you won't be able to do much with it. And he writes everything else was written off everybody else. But me, you know, what I had to do, I already knew, you know. But it was one of those things. But, man, it was fun. I had a ball. But when I got to Israel later, after Dave decided to take off some time there and... Uh, uh, play with this alpha player and then see him, I can't call his name. I saw him at all these uh, things we had when di Dave died, you know. Mm. All these, uh, this uh, cathedral in the uh, Bronx in New York, they had this big thing, this church was, so, I never saw so many people in the church. Or, you know, this was a cathedral, you know. But anyway, so that's what happened with Dave. Now what happened after that, we, when they came back, on our way back, Dave and, and uh, Joe and Paul found out that I was going with Carmen McRae, starting with her as soon as I got back at the uh, Village Vanguard, one of those places. And they were going to, I, I didn't realize they were going to be in Birdland, right down the street from where I was going to be with Carmen. But what happened was, uh, I thought you were going to say it was good. I said, Dave, nobody asked me to join there. I was asked, would I, could I do the three and a half month tour? Because Norman Bates didn't want to travel. He had family so far. So when they got to that, so I, and I said, we went away on this tour, man. We started some stuff in those countries. Good jazz with Dave's style of playing in the groove. He already had a good following, you know. But now he had a rhythm, he had a Joe and uh, Freddie Green rhythm section. See, and Joe, every time he'd be playing and David get a little anxious about something and he'd play something. And Joe sits here with a set, I'd be right here in the piano, piano boy right here and Paulo in the group. So we could hear each other perfectly, you know. So Joe would say, 
he could see out of the corner of his eye in those days, a little bit, you know, he could make out what's going on, but he had bad eyes. But every time somebody dropped something, he'd go and pick it up. <laughs> and I said to that, I said, Joe, <laughs> I used to tease him all that. Now, you know I know you can see. <laughs> and he laughed. No, no, you ain't going to fool me, but, but you can't see out of the eye, out of that out corner eye. But she could see, you know. But it started going bad on the last few years with Dave. They had rushed him to a hospital to try to see if they could save it, you know. But it wasn't him save it. But anyhow, get to the back to the story about uh, Dave. Man, Dave and I played together through the ten years, and then all the wine countries later with one of his sons, you know, played drums, Danny, and uh, and Bob Middleton and all that. He could play this game. So we'd go up there and I'd go up and we'd get to playing. Boy, it was like uh, his son was really playing very good, you know, and we locked up on him and boy, he got to a place where he could play, you know. He, he didn't have to worry about anything, so forth. But in, and then other places we went to, oh gosh, different places with just him, with Dave and myself and and Miltella, Bob, Bob Miltella, I think his name was. How was it for you being a part of Take Five? Everything was easy. Everything was easy, see, because I was always blessed with a good ear. And they would write out things, you know, that they wanted me to play. And when I said, Dave, I can't play this. And he asked me, he says, why? I said, because it, it's it in the way this goes in tunes that I play, you know, rhythm sections of it. So well, I wrote it out. I said, yeah, you wrote it out. You wrote it out. Really on the beat, you know. And the skipping has to be free. So he said, well, you play the way you play it all the time. And they left in a lot of air and space that he wasn't getting with a lot of the other guys, but they were playing up a storm, you know, so far. But uh, it was just a, a gift. I had the gift, he had the gift, Joe had the gift, and Paul had the gift. When we decided to take five, we put it in the album. We just finished his album, and take five was one and blew around on all that stuff. And we were all we went on our way to Europe. We were back in Europe doing a series of other countries and everything, through the promoters and all that stuff. And see. and uh, Tio Macera called Dave said, Dave, you got to come right back. Dave said, well, we got this. No, no, no. Cancel, come right back. Uh, we got uh, something we got to get out right away. A single on take five, you know. And uh, Paul wrote it, naturally, you know. So we came back and did it. And so I went home because we had about maybe a week off, you know, getting ready to go somewhere place. Then and so I went home to visit my mother and my kids and everybody. My little daughter comes running up to me. She says, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Do you, have you heard that take five? I said, yes, I'm on it. She said, oh. 
said, well, we're dancing to that tune. Now, the dancing take five is, can be done. These kids, the way they dance, they can dance, take five, and never count. They can be one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, two, three, and this and that, all that stuff. Not count in the time it is in. And they can dance four against five, you know. Kids, they don't know what they're doing half the time, you know. But they also, man, it was just a wonderful time, you know. But Dave and I never had an argument. Iola and I ran a lot of things from her perspective. We put out all the first programs that Dave ever had on the group, and support when I was in the group. And we just sell a lot of them at all the concerts. There's nothing to sell a thousand programs. Sometimes in the bigger schools, it'd be like 2,500. So for not just ship all that stuff in advance. What a wonderful way to end a fantastic podcast dedicated to the uh, Dave Brubeck trio. That was Eugene Wright, the bass player. And what a lovable guy. Really, really sweet. Uh, really fantastic. And um, such a privilege to hang out with him. I will say uh, that this has been a lot of fun for me to bring him together, as I mentioned earlier. But um, as my final thoughts, as we wrap up this podcast, I would encourage you to think a little bit outside of the normal box of just the song Take Five. Uh, when the quintet and quartet and trios got together, they recorded some amazing music and um, something to look forward to uh, for those uh, that aren't as familiar with Dave Brubeck and the uh, the quartet. Take a listen to um, a couple of songs I'd love to recommend. Lost Waltz is uh, perhaps my favorite. Who Said That? And For More Blues. There's also a really neat song that follows Four More Blues called Four More Drums, which I'm sure Mike appreciates. Anyway, great music, uh, fantastic musicians, and uh, what, a, what a wonderful opportunity to hopefully continue their legacy today. Definitely uh, fantastic musicians, I think, for all three of us, studying music and jazz specifically, as well as playing. Uh, you know, we can all appreciate what uh, the Dave Brubeck Trio and Quartet and so on have done for music and meant to us and to so many others. And uh, just, you know, knowing that that was the goal of a lot of people, of they wanted to be able to sound just like Eugene Wright or just like Joe or just like Dave, like just a huge influence in all of our lives. So it was fantastic to hear their stories and just their backgrounds uh, outside of the group, but, and then also just how they've came together and, and what magic they created with that. Yes, I agree with everything you guys are saying. These musicians are kind of like the true caliber of what you should be studying to be if music is something that you really want to pursue. I know I mentioned it about Joe being a drummer myself. He really stood out to me. But any of these guys, Dave or Eugene, too, I mean, perfect examples to follow by. Just amazing musicians. And you should also head over to the NAM website and check out the videos that accompany these interviews because it's it's sometimes cool to see the video. It, it adds a different element uh, to the interview. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Music History Project. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, 
and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.